This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us. The House of Delegates approved House Bill 2007 Friday. The legislation would limit gender-affirming medical treatment and surgery for transgender youth. Here are some of the highlights of the debate on the floor. Can you provide us with any evidence from Judiciary Committee or otherwise that these surgeries are even taking place in West Virginia? We have no, uh, there was no testimony provided in committee that there are uh, surgeries taking place. Okay, so no doctor came in the committee and said, yes, I perform these surgeries on a regular basis and they take place at X hospital. That never happened? We did not receive testimony from a doctor, uh, but I cannot confirm whether surgeries take place uh, in any of the instances out, laid out in the bill, particularly with regard to the exceptions set forth. Okay, so there was no evidence provided, in other words. You don't have any evidence that surgeries are taking place in West Virginia? We, have no, we, we do not have any data. I have no data right here. Okay, thank you for yielding. Why is this legislature so obsessed with the bedroom, the exam room, and any other room they can be in? Smaller government, right? That's what we hear all the time. It doesn't exist here. If you actually took the time but this place doesn't take time. We don't have conversations with doctors, actually speak to children, not in committee, nothing. And it's going to harm children. Our trans youth are attempting suicide more than 10 times as often as other kids. There's a crisis, and evidence-based based healthcare is helping address this crisis. It's keeping kids alive so that they can make it to adulthood and be productive members of society. We can be proactive instead of reactive. That's the kind of conservative legislators that our citizens want. This body effectively banned abortion last year, and now there's more of us than there were before. There's a clear appetite for this kind of, for this kind of um, conservative legislation, and I encourage you all to vote yes. I stand before you today once again, to speak out against a harmful piece of legislation, House Bill 2007, that this body in the majority has made a priority. Some of the people in this room have decided to use our short 
60 days together to punch down on an extremely vulnerable population, our youth, rather than seek solutions to help our people thrive. And I think that uh, an argument can be made, a good one, that this legislation relates to the health, safety, and well-being of minors in the state of West Virginia, and what's before you today substantially relates to that interest. And that's why I urge passage. House Bill 2007 passed on a vote of 84 to 10. It now goes to the Senate. The Senate took up two bills Friday morning relating to gambling in the state. First up, Senate Bill 345, that includes a rule relating to fantasy sports betting, specifically the rapidly growing daily fantasy sports. West Virginia's Constitution prohibits private lotteries and other games of chance, but an opinion published by Attorney General Patrick Morrissey back in 2016 determined that daily fantasy sports rely on knowledge and skill and therefore do not constitute games of chance. The new rules from the Lottery Commission would require daily fantasy sports to only offer games that permit players to play against other players and not the company or the house and forces them to register with the Secretary of State when offering games that are based on chance. Senators also took up Senate Bill 457, which would remove the Alcohol Beverage Control Commission's power to prohibit bars from hosting gambling or gaming devices. Senate Bill 457 amends a single section of code relating to Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission licensure of private clubs. It removes allowing gambling on premises from the list of actions that constitutes a violation of a private club's ABCC license. I'm happy to answer questions and otherwise urge passage of the bill. Both bills, as well as four other bills, passed the Senate and now go to the House of Delegates for its consideration. The Senate Finance Committee spent the first several weeks of the session hearing budgetary presentations from every Department of State government, but Friday morning it turned its attention to how the last of the state's coronavirus relief funds were to be spent. Chris Schultz has more. The Senate Finance Committee wants to know how $10 million in CARES money ended up being donated by Governor Jim Justice's office to Marshall University for its new baseball stadium. The money was donated to the university from the governor's gifts, grants, and donation fund and was transferred into that account in the weeks before the federal deadline to spend CARES funds. Senator Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County and finance chair, questioned why a total of $28 million of CARES money was transferred to the gifts account in the first place, given the qualifying expense for the money was listed as the Division of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Berkeley Bentley, general counsel to Justice, told the committee that as special federal revenue, the money could only be transferred into a special revenue account. I understand that, that we still have National Guard in our corrections facilities now. They are today, yeah. And we have a thousand FTEs unfilled in our corrections facilities. And we have a request for a $200 million deferred maintenance to go to, uh, to corrections. So we're under that state of emergency right now. And when you transfer the last $28 million, which doesn't come close to covering any of those corrections expenses, the governor decides to put it into a discretionary account and then start putting it into AstroTurf on baseball fields. 
I want to ask you what part of that is appropriate. When the state reimburses itself, there is no direction under federal or state law that directs where that money goes. It could not go into the governor's, this was an account within the governor's account, or an account within the governor's office that was specific to CRF, transferred that out, not to where it would normally go, I think is, is how we were looking at it. The governor's civil contingent fund, rather it had to go to a special revenue account and the most likely candidate was the gifts and grants fund and ultimately a baseball field. Earlier this week, the Senate Finance Committee heard directly from the Division of Corrections and Rehabilitation about their $200 million deferred maintenance costs, including at least $27 million worth of locks that need to be replaced across the system. Bentley told the committee that the transfer was made to officially spend the CARES money by the September 30th deadline and avoid returning the money to the federal government. Once the qualifying expense was paid, he said the state can use those funds for any legal purpose. We've spent $1.25 billion. We did that. When we transferred it out, it's, it's no longer CARES. But the money's still available for any lawful purpose, which includes the payment of those invoices that you, some of them you read off. They're related to COVID, but we're after the reporting deadline. So the money was transferred over to pay things that we, the, the invoices we hadn't received yet, not timely, what have you. But it's also available for any other purpose that is legal under state law, no longer subject to the CARES Act requirements. Later in the meeting, after questioning a representative of the state's ethics committee, Tarr considered the possibility of the committee following up later with the day's discoveries. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. Two of the bills on third reading in the House on Friday dealt with immigration laws and county financial transparency. House Bill 2008 requires state and local entities, along with law enforcement agencies, to cooperate with the enforcement of federal immigration laws. In floor debate, it was noted that there are no so-called sanctuary cities in the state now, but also pointed out that could change. The bill would deny state funds to entities not enforcing federal immigration laws. It passed 87 to 6. House Bill 3091 would require all counties to be included in the previously voluntary State Auditor's Financial Transparency website. The bill allows taxpayers to easily access the details of how the state is spending its tax dollars and what performance results are achieved for those expenditures. It passed. 93 to nothing. Six other House bills passed third reading and now go to the Senate for its consideration. A number of health-related issues have been on the table this legislative session, from gender-affirming care to PEIA coverage, even foster care and splitting up DHHR. Today, for our Reporters Roundtable, Chris Schulz is speaking with WVPB's Appalachian Health News reporter Emily Rice and Alan Sigler from the Mountain State Spotlight. Thank you, Bob. Alan, Emily, thank you so much for being on the legislature today. Um, so it's, as always, our Friday reporter roundup. And uh, today we're focusing on health. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, despite a surprising lack of, of action from the legislature so far, um, why don't we start with the biggest story, unavoidable, DHHR. 
Uh, Alan, I understand that you've been following the, the restructuring proposal. What can you tell us about that? I've been trying to. I've been doing my best. Um, I think that it's difficult to exactly know what the current status of DHHR is. Um, but that being said, there are, I've talked to a lot of experts and former employees who have talked about what needs to happen to run a successful health department. And they say a few things. They say, one, that the foundation is funding and data. You need to have the tools you need to be able to accomplish what you need to do. Outside of that, you, have, um, you need to have ambitious goals and you need to have realistic plans to get to those goals. Um, from what it seems like right now, I think that it's fair to say that DHHR is lacking some data. Um, we talked about the All Payers Claims database. Um, that's a database that could have the opportunity to help both DHHR and state in general save money. Is um, that the same one that the Senate uh, passed a, a bill to get rid of just it did. this week? It did. It was supposed to be created in 20, 2011. Um, it never got built, um, and now it's being repealed. Um, it's a database that could help inform West Virginians, could help inform DHHR. It's going away. Um, but I think the takeaway when I think about DHHR restructuring is whether it's one department or three departments, um, it needs to have the tools to operate. Um, it needs to have funding. It needs to have um, data. Yeah, and I mean, we're still stuck, as far as I know, waiting for House action because the Senate came right out of the gate with a DHHR bill. They passed it that very first day. And Emily, speaking of the Senate, I know that you uh, watched the DHHR's presentation to the Senate Finance Committee this week. What did you hear in that meeting? Yeah. So they put forth their fiscal 2024 budget. Uh, it's about $7.7 billion. Uh, that's only a little bit more than last year and it's a 75% from federal funding. However, the thing I found interesting in that meeting was the discussion exactly on that uh, restructuring and whether or not the restructuring itself will hold up the DHHR in its actionable items. There was a really interesting uh, exchange between Senator Maroney and Dr. Coben about that exact uh, issue here, that as long as we can't move forth on House Bill, Senate Bill 2006, which is restructuring, we won't be able to solidify these budgets or make these kind of actions and policy uh, that you were speaking to to actually make it an effective organization. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really considered the fact that until this restructuring goes through, DHHR is functionally in limbo. I mean, you can't really make any decisions until this, this restructuring happens. Alan, have you heard anything about that from the experts that you've spoken to? I haven't heard specifically about that, but I think you're absolutely right. You see that. You see bills being passed right now that say something is going to be DHHR's responsibility. Um, DHHR might not exist in a year from now. Um, and I think it's a weird state. It's a weird state of affairs. Um, and now that the um, Senate and the House have the ability to override any vetoes um, just with the number of votes they have, um, it looks like it's going to go through. Yeah, well, I mean, again, we're all holding our breaths to see what happens on that one. But I think the other big story of the week that we cannot uh, ignore uh, and has certainly stolen the spotlight from DHHR a little bit is, is House Bill 2007. Um, Alan, I know that you followed the public hearing yesterday morning. It stretched for almost two hours. What did you hear from some of these uh, public voices? Yeah, so just for some background, H House Bill 2007 um, started out as a ban on surgery, gender-affirming surgery for minors in the state. Um, that 
by all accounts, was not done in West Virginia. Um, it wasn't something that any provider did. It is not, in, except in rare cases, recommended. Um, that changed when the bill got to the judiciary, um, the House Judiciary Committee. It became extended to gender-affirming medication, which does is prescribed in the... So, Alan, just, just to clarify, when we talk about gender-affirming medication, we're talking about things like hormone blockers? Is that we what are, we're talking puberty about? blockers and um, sex hormones, so estrogen and testosterone as well, too. Um, those are prescribed to kids right now. And the American Medical Association, um, among many other medical bodies, have found these to be safe and effective um, treatments for um, reducing depression and anxiety, um, improving mental health across the board for transgender um, transgender Americans, transgender West Virginians. Um, so they extended that in the judiciary. So this public hearing was in response, held in response to that extension. Um, you had people coming from all over the state. You had people, I spent a lot of time with a group from West Virginia Wesleyan that came to talk about, um, to, to protest this bill, to oppose this bill. A couple professors spoke, but a lot of students came to also share, show their opposition um, to this bill. So. Uh, Emily, I know that we have actually seen uh, action on this bill. Did the legislators listen to what we heard yesterday? That's a difficult question to answer, as myself, I'm not a legislature, but they did uh, vote on it <clears throat> after some contentious conversations back and forth between, um, on both sides of the aisle, back and forth for, I believe, about an hour and a half. Um, the vote finally came down to 84-10. It did pass the House. Um, was that vote on party lines, more or less? It was on party lines. The only absent votes were one Democrat. I can't recall the name at the moment, but there were a couple of absent votes, but it was directly down party lines. Well, I believe Elliot Pritt, um, the Democrat. You. Yeah. Thank you. Also Excellent. voted for them. And this is why we have a roundtable. So exactly. Yeah, yeah, a multiplicity of voices. Um, so, so what exactly was that debate? I mean, after the public hearing where we had so many West Virginians come out and say, we're against this and this is damaging. What was the debate that the legislators, actu legislators excuse me, actually had in the room? Yeah. Well, something uh, Delegate Danielle Walker actually brought up um, during her time was the lack of attendance of lawmakers at the public hearing. A lot of that has to do with committee meetings that happen in the mornings. Uh, but she took her time on the floor to read those statements from the people that you're referring to that spoke yesterday. So they did, the, on the hearing, on the legislature's actually hearing this, they had to hear it. Yes, this morning we all did. Um, but they did not act differently. The, most of them stayed down their party lines. They said they had spoken to their own experts. They said, you know, They've to spoken to their constituents. Each side had so many hypotheticals that you know are never going to come to fruition in most situations. Um, but there was a lot of debate, a lot of worst-case scenarios. But it did ultimately come down to party lines. Um, did anything stand out to you from that debate? I think Emily hit on a lot of the big points. Something that stood out to me from the day before was we talked about some of the people who were missing from that discussion from this public hearing. One notable person missing was lead sponsor Jeff Foster. Um, he said he had another committee meeting to beat at. Um, I talked to him, was able to talk to him after the meeting, the public hearing had ended and before the floor session started. Um, he said that there is no clear evidence that um, gender affirming 
medication reduces um, depression, reduces instances of suicide. Um, within the peer-reviewed evidence, that's not true. Um, there is clear evidence that gender-affirming medication, gender-affirming hormones, um, has this sizable reduction in depression, anxiety, and attempts at suicide. Well, it's certainly interesting, um, and, and I guess it really boils down now to see whether or not the Senate even takes this up, um, which I guess we'll find out next week. Yeah. Uh, but I want to move on to more broadly reproductive health. Uh, Alan, I know that you have, um, well, both of you really have been, have been looking at how the abortion ban has come up during this session so far. Um, Alan, just before we uh, turn the cameras on, you were talking to us about the point that legislators were making about the abortion ban and uh, promoting family health, promoting sure. families. Uh, so what have you heard about that this session? Sure, so we all remember the abortion ban. When it was in September, it passed. Um, again, I don't, it was similar to party lines. Um, another bill was being considered at that same time, one that would have expanded access to birth control, one that would have um, expanded um, insurance coverage. Um, that bill didn't get passed in the summer. Um, a version of it came up this time, but it funds uh, pregnancy crisis centers, or uh, sorry, not specifically funding to pregnancy crisis centers, but channels to create funding towards pregnancy crisis centers. Um, it's a different bill. There's the birth control access was removed. Um, it's, it looks a lot different. Um, that is, again, we go back to legislators said when they were passing the abortion bill, they were gonna make it easier for West Virginian families to both have and raise children. Um, there's barriers to that right now. There's childcare is really expensive. Um, you, have, um, you have lack of coverage of Medicaid um, oftentimes. Um, it, you have really hard access to uh, temporary assistance for needy families. West Virginia works, that program. Um, there are some bills right now that could um, make it easier to, to improve health outcomes or health to improve um, health in the state, uh, reproductive health. Yeah, and you, Alan, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. No. I just know that um, you know we're talking about access to health and, and, and access to even a place to give birth is, is sure. a huge problem in this state. And um, I want to get to that in just a second. But very briefly, Emily, I know that you've been following a couple of lawsuits that popped up over the last couple of weeks with regards to the abortion ban. What, exactly. what have you seen? Um, I was actually doing research exactly for that um, and came across a filing from the ACLU uh, Wednesday, I believe, uh, against the state of West Virginia for HB 302, which is the legislation that you were talking about that passed in September during special session. Um, what the ACLU is purporting in this lawsuit is that it is irrational and unconstitutional. Uh, I've been trying to reach out to the ACLU to figure out exactly what that means in legal terms, but haven't had any response yet. Um, however, I've spoken with other advocates um, also involved in a lawsuit uh, from GenBioPro, which is essentially the manufacturer of the abortion pill. It's a two-step, it's a uh, very long name for the actual pill, but they're actually going about their lawsuit in a very different way. So they are suing the state of West Virginia for lack of access to federally approved medication, whereas the ACLU is going 
a different route in unconstitutional and irrational. So it's a very interesting reminder that, you know, legislation isn't over when the session ends. I mean, you know, we're talking about new legislation this year, but things that have been done uh, continue to to pop up. Very briefly, we've only got a couple of minutes here left. Uh, I'm curious to know about some of the things that the legislature has done to improve health. Alan, I know that you uh, were talking about um, sexual assault uh, evidence collection. Tell me a little bit about that. So there's a bill right now that has gone through the Senate, I believe. Um, it is increasing access to these sexual assault forensic examinations. If this bill were to pass, it would require that every emergency room in the state um, staff have staff who are trained in how to collect um, evidence after the victim of a sexual assault um, comes to an emergency room. Um, this is, we have to understand, this is a very time sensitive procedure. You only have a few hours to get it done after someone has become the victim of sexual assault. Um, so how does that square with our inability to staff the positions that we already have? It's tough, especially when right now, as it is, there's no fiscal note on this. There needs to be funding. I'm talking to people from this, um, one of the state coalitions that does a lot of work on this, and she said that it is absolutely necessary for um, there to be funding to make this happen. Otherwise, it just won't. Well, and that certainly continues to be an issue, um, which we hopefully will see resolved as the session continues. Um, that's unfortunately all the time we have. Alan, Emily, I want to thank you both for being on the legislature today. Uh, we really appreciate your insights, and hopefully we can do it again sometime on another Friday. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks thank for you. having us. Back to you, Bob. Thanks for that, Chris. Tune into the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily in our radio news program from West Virginia Morning and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner, thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.